So uh, we're going to jump into our sermon today. Uh, today is the last um, the last sermon in our sermon series, uh, Pillars of the Local Church. Um, our, our leadership residents, Jacob and Matt, uh, came up with this uh, series, uh, and then they dumped uh, like doctrinal bomb sermons on me to do um, and took the easy ones for themselves. But they gave me this last one. Uh, this this last sermon, uh, and uh, we're just going to kind of wrap up the series. I didn't have to dive deep into anything doctrinally this time. It was a big relief for me, um, and so thanks, uh, Jacob and Matt. Matt's not here today, but um, anyways, we're going to be in, uh, in Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be in chapters 10 and 12 today, um, and so uh, we're going to read a lot of scripture today, if that's okay. Um, and so uh, go ahead and be turning to Hebrews 10. Um, and I just wanted to remind you that in this series, basically what we've been doing, um, it's a simple concept. Pillars of the local church, what are the things that make us the church? Um, what are the things doctrinally that we believe that make us the church, that we hold to and, are, and hold commitments to? What are the things that we do um, as the church that we, uh, that we hold to and are committed to? Um, it, it kind of hits both the orthodoxy of what we believe as a church and the orthopraxy, what we do as the church. Um, and so that's basically what we've been doing this whole summer is looking at, as the church, what are the things, the beliefs and the actions that make us who we are? And so today, um, I really kind of just want to wrap that up um, with with a general um, look at the unshakable kingdom, a commitment to the unshakable kingdom, and uh, and we'll see as we go what exactly that means. Um, so, if you've had time uh, to turn uh, in your Bible, whether physical or on your phone, um, we're going to be in Hebrews ten, and we're going to start in verse nineteen. Uh, if you don't have that with you today, we'll have it up on the screen for you. So, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. And then turn over to chapter 12. We're going to read this whole thing. So bear with me. Um, Therefore... Uh, Starting in verse 1, chapter 12, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up in struggling against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly, or lose heart when you are reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness without it. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears, because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him, who warned them on earth? Even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I I think I can just stop right there, right? That's... That's just an incredible passage, and there's a lot of meat there, and we're just going to be taking a nibble of it today. Um, there's just so much there, so much. I mean, it, it's kind of epic, uh, some of the stuff that's said there at the end of, of chapter 12. But what I want us to focus on today is the idea of an unshakable kingdom, um, as the church, we are committed to this kingdom that it's talking about. So what is that? Well, if you think about kingdoms here on earth, uh, whether it's a kingdom, um, an ancient kingdom, or an ancient empire, or maybe modern king, so-called kingdoms, 
um, or empires or um, even, you know, even America as a world power is what we call them today. World powers, it's the same thing. It's a, it's a country, it's a nation, it's a group that has strong influence over a, a wide group of people. Um, and so really, when you think about the impacts that kingdoms have on the world, um, whether they're ruled by, ruled by an emperor, a king, a chief, a senate, whatever it may be, um, groups and societies follow certain laws and rules and ideals, um, and these kingdoms seek to spread their influence of those ideals and of those rules and laws around the world, right, uh, into other groups of people. And so if you think about, so since we're in the Bible, let's think back to ancient Rome. The emperor was in Rome, right? The emperor wasn't traipsing around the whole Roman Empire, um, making sure that everyone was following all the rules. No, he had people instantiated and in, in rule in his name in different parts of the kingdom. And so he had Roman soldiers that were enforcing it. He had procurators that were enforcing it, like Herod. There were magistrates that, uh, of, of a court that you could come before that represented Rome. Um, there were even tax collectors that were collecting money for the kingdom. And these were spread all throughout the kingdom. And these people, whether they were a lowly tax collector um, or they were a procurator like Herod that had a lot of power, they were all, all of the power that they had was in the name of the emperor. So the kingdom of, or the empire of ancient Rome was ruled by the emperor, but it had uh, representations of this power in place all around the kingdom to make sure that the spread of those ideals, the spread of those laws were in place. God's kingdom um, is the reign of God. So when you hear and when you read in the Bible or you hear people talk about the kingdom of God, essentially what they're saying is God's reign, right? God's rule. And so the church, when you say, when you talk about the church and you talk about the kingdom, a lot of times those kind of get mixed together. Um, and it's not necessarily like the church is the kingdom of God. What the church is, is it's kind of like those magistrates and procurators and, um, and Roman soldiers that were instantiated in other parts of the world that were representative of the power that was, that was really there in Rome under the emperor. And so when you think about this, um, the church is, uh, the church here is representative of God's rule, right? God reigns and rules in heaven right now, and the church right now is sort of like um, instantiations of his power here on, on earth. Um, we are to represent the rule that he has fully in heaven and will one day have fully in heaven and earth, right? Does that make sense? So when we're talking about the kingdom today, remember, we're not, we're talking about God's ultimate and full reign of which right now as the church, we're just a representative of. Um, and let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16, because uh, this will give us a good uh, idea of what we're talking about here. 
Uh, From now on, then, it says, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Uh, And so, think about that. We are ambassadors of God's reign and rule here on earth. We are here saying, hey, God is in charge. Submit to him, submit to his reign and rule, because one day it's coming, right? Remember how Hebrews 12 ends, our God, for our God is a consuming fire. We'll get to that later of, of what that means, but, but just think about us as ambassadors. That's what the church is. So as a Christian, you are a part of the church universal, and as a local church, we are an instantiation of the church universal that represents God's rule. It sounds complicated, but when you, if you were to just like chart it out, it's like, oh yeah, it's simple. God, church universal, local church. Okay, I see it, right? Um, we are ambassadors for Christ. So as we wrap up this series on the pillars of the local church, I want us to look at what it means to be ambassadors of Christ, what it means to have a commitment to representing God's kingdom as his church. Um, we're going to look at this in three sections. Uh, first, the gathered kingdom. Secondly, the enduring kingdom. And thirdly, and lastly, the unshakable kingdom. The gathered kingdom, the enduring kingdom, and the unshakable kingdom. So let's look first at the gathering kingdom. Uh, and this is why I included that section in uh, in Hebrews 10. Remember it says, do not neglect the gathering together as is the habit of some. So let's look at what that means exactly. Scripture of course, teaches that Christ died for you, right? You've heard this, Jesus died for you. Um, And I feel like a lot of times the gospel is presented in that way. He died for you individually so that you could be reconciled to God. And that's absolutely true. Scripture teaches this. Um, But I think even more than this individualistic application of the gospel, uh, the Bible even more so teaches that Christ died for the church, Christ died for his people. Uh, a couple of quick examples that are, that are familiar. Um, think about Hebrews 5.25 uh, with the application for husbands loving their wives. He says, uh, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Uh, so you see, it's, it's Christ dying for the church. He loves the church. He loves his people. Uh, plural, right? Acts 20, 28 says, Be on guard for yourselves for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's describing the church of God, right? The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And I think if you were to examine the New Testament and look at, okay, where are all the times that a singular 
individual application of the gospel is used in Christ dying for you individually. And how many times does it say Christ died for us, we, the church, his people? I think what you'll find um, is that many more times it says Christ died for the church, plurally. Um, His people, plural. Us, plural, right? So what does that mean? Because it definitely does teach that he died for us individually, but it but it teaches, you think, even more so, or it emphasizes, rather, I should say, that Christ died for the church, plural. Um, and I think what this means for us um, is, it, let me present it as a question. If this is the case, if the New Testament says more times than the individual application that Christ died for a plural, for his people, for his church, then let me ask this. Why so often... Do we shrug off commitments to the church, commitments to our church family, commitments to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Why is it so easy for us to shrug those off? Why do we forget, as it says in Galatians 6.10, to work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith? I think it's because we're so inundated in our minds and in our hearts with the ideals of our Western American culture that we have a natural tendency built into us to take care of mine, to take care of me and my own. And that's the priority. And it's, and that ideal is, and and really it's, it's seen as a virtue. Take care of yourself and don't bother other people, Right. Um, it, that's kind of seen as an ideal in our culture. You take care of yourself. You worry about yourself. Um, you take care of your family. Don't bother other people. Don't worry about them. They can take care of themselves, right? And it's a very individualistic ideal that I think we're just so inundated with. But what we see here in Scripture um, is sort of the opposite. Christ died with an emphasis, at least in Scripture, for the church, for his people. He died for a group, right? He died for us individually, yes. That's how, that's how justification works in our lives. We repent from our sins. But even the, the emphasis that we see is Christ dying for his people. And if Christ has this, if the New Testament has this emphasis on Christ dying for his people, then shouldn't our emphasis in our lives as representatives of God, be similar. We are to give our lives for the church, just as Christ gave his life for the church. And so our first main point is simply this. Do not neglect one another. Um, You know, we see in Hebrews 10, uh, he talks about this boldness and new life we have in Christ. And, And then he kind of goes into some of the results of that boldness that we have in Christ and that new life. And one of them is that we consider one another. Therefore, he says, since this is the case, consider one another. Since we have a new life that looks like Jesus, then the natural result of that should be our considering one another. Uh, This means that in Christ, as his church, we need to begin to push against the individual and the individualistic emphasis and ideals um, of our culture. 
Um, and, and we need to begin to regard one another to think of others first, um, to think of others as more of a primary part of who we are. You know, we need to consider one another's needs, to consider one another's growth, to consider one another's companionship. And, and that's, that is, that can be very countercultural, um, because so much of our culture is built around discovering who you are in yourself, uh, becoming who you are, taking care of yourself first, not pushing things on other people, not worrying so much how much other people are growing, uh, but focusing on yourself. We need to push against this. And why is that? Well, it's simply because this is what Christ was like, right? He said himself, I came not to be served, but to serve. And if that's the case, if Jesus's priority was his church, dying for his people, serving the world, then that should be, as ambassadors of Christ, our priority too. Under God's rule in his kingdom, his people are always regarding one another. Think about that word, regard. To regard is to bring to one's mind, to think about. How often are you thinking about the people that are sitting beside you in your row or across the row, right? Across the aisle. How many... How often are you thinking about how is so-and-so doing? I wonder if so-and-so has, you know, accomplished this yet. Maybe I should check on them. How often are you bringing to mind and thinking on um, and therefore praying on and taking action and checking on the people that are sitting beside you in church? As God's church, as ambassadors and representatives of Christ, this should be a part of who we are. And... As his ambassadors here on earth, we should display these qualities to the world. The the world should look at the church and say, they take care of each other. It's amazing. That's why the early church exploded, and there was nothing that the Roman Empire or anyone else could do about it. Because if you go back and look at what people, what leaders and leaders in thought during that time in ancient Rome were saying, they were saying they're taking care of each other. When there was a famine, um, I can't, I want to say it was either Pliny the younger or the elder had written um, about how there was this plague and the Romans just left the people that were sick and in need and the Christians stayed and they noticed it. They were taking care of each other and taking care of the people in the world around them. They were regarding one another, considering one another, and it was a part of who they were because they were representing who Christ is. And so this is part of why we take membership so seriously as Redeemer City Church, why we treat it as a covenant, as something that you covenant yourself to the church, because our hope is that as a member of Redeemer City, you would can commit yourself to regarding and serving the others in the church and that you would in turn be regarded and served by the other members of the church. That's why we take it so seriously. It's a serious commitment um, because we want to make sure that we are actually being representative of who Christ is as a church. And so uh, the application for this point of not neglecting one another is simple, and it's right there in the verse. Make gathering together a habit. 
He says, do not neglect gathering together as is the habit of some. So what does that tell us? That tells us that gathering together as the church is not something that is necessarily just going to come naturally. It's a habit that you have to build. Either you have a habit, have a habit of gathering together, or you have a habit of neglecting to gather together. There's, there's not really room for anything in between because either you're doing it or you're not, right? So what does this look like? I think this is, this is very practical, very simple. Number one, you already did it. You're, you're here today. You came to church. When we gather together as a church, we're, we're being a part of something that has been done since Christ rose and the Spirit came, right? People have been gathering together in worship since the beginning of the church. We come together. We praise God. We hear from his word. We love one another. We build one another up. And that's part of what gathering together on Sunday morning is about. And in gathering together and making a commitment to gather together on Sunday morning, we're showing the world, hey, I'm not sleeping in on Sunday. I'm giving up an extra day of my weekend to go love people in my church and to worship God with them on Sunday mornings. And that's different, right? That's countercultural. And it's, and it's a display of the love we have for one another and the love we have for God. Come to church. Make a habit of it. Uh, A few more things. Eat together. When's the last time you just had a meal with someone uh, in your church that wasn't like your necessarily closest friend that comes to church with you or family members that come to church with you? Eat together. Have a meal together. Get to know one another. Uh, Join a D group. Uh, I announced that earlier, right? If you want to provoke one another to love and good works, as he says in Hebrews 10, then what better way than to come together with a small group of people, read God's word together, and keep each other accountable to love and good works? Join a D group. Join a small group um, here in our church. We, we provide everything you need to do it. You just have to say, hey, I want to do it, and we'll help you. And then serve the community together. Um, you know, this is something that uh, that, you know, we need to step up in as a church, serve the community together. Uh, I met with someone in the church this week that wants to do an outreach, um, and so we're going we're gonna to start working on that. We need to start serving our community together, and it doesn't have to be a planned event. It can just be, hey, I heard this is going on. Do you want to come with me? Let's go serve our community. Um, sometimes it can be a planned event, but it doesn't always have to be a planned event for you to say, hey, I see a need. I'm going to get together some other people in my church and love our community in this way. Come to church, eat together, join a small group, serve the community together. These are ways that we can make gathering together a habit, not just on Sunday morning. That's where it all starts, right? That's why at the end of our service and our benediction, we say, you've been called, you've been equipped, and now you are sent because you're being sent out of here to be a representative of Christ through the rest of your week. So make gathering together a habit, not just on Sunday mornings, although that's where it starts, but throughout the week, eating together, studying God's word together, serving the community together, loving one another, and provoking each other to good works. As the church of Christ, our gathering in love to serve one another and the world shows the world that God's rule is different. 
God's rule is one of love and grace and patience. It's a, it's a rule and reign of compassion. And doesn't our world need to see that? God's rule is, a, is different than the world's, but it's a better way. And I think if we were to make a habit of gathering together to show the world that, then it would make the world more interested in what we're doing, right? His is the better way. But it's not always easy. And I think that's why when we get to Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11, he lists out a bunch of heroes of the faith, it's sometimes called the Hall of Faith. Um, he lists out a bunch of heroes, and then he says, since we have a great cloud of witnesses, we can endure. It, you, what we see in Hebrews 12 is a call to endurance. And so while God's rule and reign is the better way, it's the way of love, of patience, of compassion, of grace, it, that doesn't mean it's easy. And I think that's why when we get to Hebrews 12, there's a call to endurance. So let's look at the enduring kingdom. Unfortunately, I think we tend to think of suffering and trials that we face as something that we just need to get to the other side of. That's our goal. Let's get through this, right? Let me get through this time of suffering financially. Let me get through this time of suffering with some illness. Let me get through this time of suffering with a schedule that's out of control. Let me get through this time. And when I get to the other side, everything will be all right. And that's kind of how we treat suffering, trials, whatever it may be. We kind of treat them as something to survive, right, to just get through. But what we see in Hebrews 12 is something altogether different. We see that our goal in the midst of trials and suffering should not just be to survive, but to thrive. To thrive through the suffering and the trials. It, it, it even says, endure suffering as discipline. Think about it this way. Think about uh, working out. Uh, how do you grow a muscle? To grow a muscle and to make it stronger, to make it have more endurance, you literally have to tear it apart. <laughs> That's what working out is. You tear your muscles apart. You're sore and limping around uh, until it can build back. But when it builds back, it's stronger. Um, it, it's really kind of incredible. It's incredible that our bodies work that way. You literally tear it apart, and it comes back stronger, right? It goes through. You go through some literal physical suffering, but on the other side, you you haven't done it just to survive through working out. No one's forcing you to work out and, and, and get stronger, right? You've done it to thrive. You've done it because you know if you put your body through this, if you literally tear your muscles apart, then you'll come out on the other side stronger, healthier, ready to live life physically, more clear and able to endure physically things. And so that, I think that's, what we sh- that's the way we should think about this. For our faith and godliness to grow, we have to endure trials. And I love, I love Hebrew, what it says in Hebrews 12. It says that as we endure these trials... We keep our eyes on Jesus, who is, 
the and the, I know in the song uh, "Fix My Eyes" it says the founder and the finisher of our faith. Uh, in this passage, uh, it says it a little different. It says um, it says the source and perfecter of our faith. And and the reason we keep our eyes on Jesus to endure is because Jesus is the example of endurance through suffering. Jesus, it says, considered it a joy. It was a joy for him to suffer for our benefit. Let's look at what James 1, verses 2 through 4 says. It says that we should consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And that brings us to our second main point, which is this. Change your perspective on suffering from one of fear to one of joy. If we we do this as the church, if we as the church, as representatives of God, face trials and face suffering with joy with something that's deeper and greater than what is thrown against us because it's founded in Christ. That's another way the world will look at us and say, what do they have that I don't? How do they endure? How do they thrive through suffering? Think again, back to the early church. The early church went through all kinds of suffering, persecution, disease, uh, just like just trying to meet together without being killed. Uh, and the church thrived. It didn't just survive. It thrived through that. Not just in the early church. It's happening in the world today. In places where the church is being pushed and crushed down, so they think, The church is thriving. It's not just surviving. It's thriving in the global south. It's thriving in China, where they're not even supposed to be meeting. It's thriving because that's part of what being a representative of God's kingdom. When you're under God's rule, you thrive through suffering and trials. And consider what it means to suffer amidst amidst the gathering of believers. Suffering amidst your church members, the people that sit beside you in church. If you are making gathering together a habit, then you begin to share in the joys and the sufferings of your fellow members, of your fellow Christians in your church. And as you do that, you bear one another's burdens. You help each other see how you can grow through your suffering. You help people make it through it and thrive through their suffering. It's, these are all linked together. We gather together. We represent God's love in the world. We gather together and we endure trials and suffering together. And we know as we do that God has better things in mind for us. This is why we can approach, that's why we can change our perspective from one of fear to joy. When we start to face a a trial or some sort of suffering, we can know God has something in mind for me. How many people of the world can say that about suffering? It's meaningless without a God that is working something in you 
and in the church, in his church. You know, it says that uh, we, it, it talks about his discipline versus earthly discipline, right? And I think, you know, we discipline our children. Um, just, you have to, there's no getting around it. You have to discipline your children. And, you know, he says that we, we have, uh, how does he say it? He says, we discipline for a short time based on what seemed good to them. And it's true. I, I think some of my discipline is selfish, right? But even when I have my best intentions in mind in disciplining my son, sometimes I get it wrong. Whether it's the method that I discipline with, or maybe I was just wrong. Like, I got on to him for something he didn't even really actually do. I just thought he did, right? It's what seemed good to me. But God, it says, does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. So what does that mean? This is our second application. Consider how God might be making you more like Christ through your trials. And as you do, what does it tell us if we can consider this, if we can think on this? As a church, as an individual, what is God doing in our church? What is God doing in my life, in my family, through this suffering, through this trial, that is, might make me look more like Jesus? If we do this, the promise that we see here in Hebrews and in that passage in James is that we will be made holy. We will be lacking in nothing. We will be made complete. Jesus, the founder and finisher, the source and perfecter of our faith. And it happens through suffering, through trials. Just like our muscles were torn apart, but we come back on the other side more complete, less lacking, stronger, ready to face and thrive through the next thing. We'll be complete in Christ. We'll be lacking in nothing. And if knowing that God is working in our suffering to make us more like Christ was not encouraging enough, we also learn that as we endure through trials, the things we do for God's kingdom endure. The things we do as representatives of God's kingdom as his church here on earth are unshakable. When it, when it was talking about it was talking about there at the end of Hebrews 12, God is going to shake not only what's on earth, and what's, but what's in heaven. And what will remain is what's unshakable. What does that mean? Well, let's look at some more scripture. Colossians 3 says, uh, starting in verse 1, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's ruling. Where Christ, keep your things on Christ as he's ruling in heaven. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so what does this tell us? We set our mind on the things of Christ, the things that are above, where Christ is seated on the, at the throne of God, where Christ is ruling, where God is reigning, right? Set your mind on those things. And as you do that, when Christ comes back to officially bring fully his kingdom, then we will appear with him in glory along with those things that we were setting our mind to and doing here on earth. 
Those things will endure. What are those things? What are these things above? Skip down a little bit to verse 12, Colossians 3, starting in 12. Therefore, as God's chosen, chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ to which you were called in one body rule your hearts, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These things are unshakable. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, peace, forgiveness, love, unity. These things are unshakable. And when you build these things into your life, as you gather together and suffer and endure through trials, you build these things into your life, into the life of those around you, and taking that out into the world, you are building something that is unshakable. When God shakes up everything to bring in the new heavens and the new earth, those things will remain. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging as the church of God, knowing that although it seems like as hard as I try, nothing happens, knowing that even those littlest moments of compassion, of gentleness, of trying to build peace, of a forgiveness that you give that you might never see anything of. Those, even those littlest ones, when God shakes everything, those things will remain. Hebrews tells us that what cannot be shaken will remain and that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's coming. It's a promised. We are going to receive an unshakable kingdom that will endure, that will last, that will make all the trials and suffering that we endured through seem like a shadow in the past. What we do as representatives of God's rule, of representatives and ambassadors of his kingdom as his church, last forever. And it's an honor, it says, says it's an honor for us to do this as his people. But Hebrews 12 ends with somewhat of a warning, right? Remember earlier I said, I, I reminded us that it says, our God is a consuming fire. But what does it say earlier? It says, we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ that speaks louder than anything that can be brought against us. It speaks louder than the blood of Abel that protected It speaks louder than any condemnation that can be brought against you. We are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And that blood that was shed as Jesus took on the full weight of God's consuming fire was done so that we could approach the throne of God with boldness, knowing that we are now his people in Christ. Jesus Christ on the cross took on the full weight of that consuming fire of God so that we never have to experience that. 
but it's still a warning. If you are not in Christ, if you are not in Christ and building these unshakable things, when everything is shaking up, will you and what you've been doing remain? God is a consuming fire. And when his fire comes at the end, it will eat up all evil, all injustice, all the wrongs and all the suffering that we've experienced. That fire will consume all those things and his kingdom built on love, compassion, unity, peace, all those things we talked about will remain and will be revealed with him in glory. How amazing is that? But heed the warning. Our God is consuming fire. But there's an offer there. If you are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, if you look at Jesus, recognize him as Lord and Savior, submit to him and ask him for forgiveness and repentance, you too can be a part of God's unshakable kingdom. And when at the end everything is shaken up, you too can be revealed with Christ in glory because you are his. So, as we go, let's think about what this looks like. I want to give us maybe some questions to ask ourselves. uh, Just a few quick things. Uh, Number one, when was the last time I actively sought to bear another's burden? Or actively sought out someone to provoke a fellow Christian toward holiness, toward love and good works. Are you actively seeking out those things? Are you making a habit out of bearing other people's burdens? Are you making a habit out of provoking your fellow Christians to love and good works? That's question. This is something we gotta. We have to ask ourselves because. God's kingdom is a gathering kingdom, one that bears one another's burdens and provokes each other to love and good works. Are you actively seeking out those opportunities? Another one, how can I leverage my business, my job, my influence with friends and family, uh, whatever it may be, whatever, wherever in your life you have influence, how can I leverage that to build the unshakable qualities of God's kingdom? How can you in your business, maybe as a business owner or or a manager, how can you leverage that position and that influence to build qualities of God's kingdom? Compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience. Because uh, I'll tell you, in the business world, those are not virtues. If you're building a business on those unshakable qualities of God, you're going to be building something that looks very different than what the world is offering. How can you do that in, in whatever job, whatever influence, with your family and friends? How can you leverage those opportunities to build unshakable qualities? And one more question. Are my priorities in life built around growing God's kingdom or my own? 
are my priorities built around growing the unshakable kingdom of God or what the world tells me I should be growing? These are all really good questions that I've got to ask myself. We all need to ask ourselves if we want to be a part of what God is doing here on earth now, building his unshakable kingdom. So as we go, just one last application. Let us be a church built on the gospel of Christ, taking its message of love, hope, and peace to a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for... God, for your incredible love for us. God, Jesus, that you would look to the cross and endure the cross on our behalf so that we could be your people. And not just so that you could rescue us, God, but so that you could send us out as your ambassador, so that you could send us out. God, you promised promised your disciples that they would do greater things than you. What an incredible thing for God to come to earth to say to his people. And God, it's an honor. And we, we want to serve you and represent you with awe and reverence and love. God, fill us up with these unshakable qualities. Grow us in these fruits of the Spirit. And guide us as we go out into this world as your people, as your church representing your wonderful rule and reign. God, we pray that you would use us as a church to build your unshakable kingdom here in Lafayette and around the world. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.